What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So, what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Hey friends, thanks so much for listening to the podcast. And we want to make sure that you know about all the other exciting ways to get more exclusive content from The Bill Press Show. We're on Patreon. Did you know that? On Patreon. So to go to Patreon, P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash BP show to get videos that nobody else gets. All we ask is five bucks a month and you get access to daily commentary and every week we put up a special interview just for our Patreon subscribers. Hey, it's a great way to support progressive media and get your hands on some fun, new, exclusive content. Thanks so much for supporting the show by going to patreon.com slash bpshow. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Welcome to The Bill Press Show. My name is not Bill Press. My name is Peter Ogburn. As you just heard the announcer say, we're giving you everything you need to fight the Trump administration, including new policy. New policy here on The Bill Press Show. We will not serve dinner to any members of the Trump administration. That is our solemn vow to you. I hate, I do hate that we're going to have to talk about this. Oh, but we're going to talk about it. We're going to talk about it today. Sarah Huckabee Sanders not being able to eat a hot meal uh, over the weekend. Eighty, She got 86. <laughs> I love it. We're going to talk about that uh, a little bit later on in the show. Look, I just want to be clear. We've got a lot of stuff to talk about today. There's a lot of immigration news. Uh, There's a lot of White House news with uh, our friend Hunter Walker from Yahoo, who's going to be joining us in the second hour of the program. Uh, The immigration stuff we're going to cover uh, with Dara Lind from Vox. And our buddy Van Newkirk is coming in at, at the second hour of the show to talk about a couple of very powerful pieces he wrote for The Atlantic. Uh, So we've got a lot of stuff to cover. But the first story I want to get into, this is going to break your heart, everybody. Reading directly from CNN. American Outdoor Brands, which sounds like a fun company, right? It sounds like a good, reputable company. American Outdoor Brands, they are actually the gun maker that owns Smith & Wesson. So they're not so fun. But they put in a statement uh, before the weekend, plunging sales of their firearms are a major problem. Quarterly sales dropped 25% compared to the fourth quarter of last year, and profit, listen to this, profit plummeted more than 70%. Sales for the full year were down 33% from the year before, and profit plunged 84%. Wow. That's gigundous. And every time that there's a horrible shooting, what's the story? What's the story always? Gun sales, through the roof. Through the roof. It always happens. 
Every time that there's a horrible gun tragedy in this country, gun sales go through the roof. Well, not anymore. And they even said this is because of, quote, social activists causing us to incur substantial costs. Well, well, well. At least they didn't say because of paid actors. <laughs> right, right. That's fair. I'll give them that. They didn't say that. But whenever you see David Hogue and all the Parkland shooting victims, the people that uh, actually had the guts to speak out against gun violence after they saw their friends get slaughtered, they're actually having an impact for like the first time ever. For the first time in any gun violence story that I remember saying where a gun maker is having to come out afterwards and say, oh, crap, we are actually not selling as many guns as we used to. Think about that. Think about the impact that these high school students, I guess some of them have graduated high school now, so they're college students, but still, young adults Speaking of David Hogue, he has a younger sister. I think she's two years younger. Uh-huh. Like, this is not going to end. No. No, 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 no. That's the thing. This is just the beginning. It's just the beginning. And, and Smith & Wesson is already having to say, like, crap, we're losing so many sales. That's something warm and fuzzy to start your Monday morning. I feel so good about it. Yeah. Make America great again. Put these merchants of death out of business. The stock price for American outdoor brands dropped 6%, 6% in one day on Thursday. Dropped 6%. The share prices of other companies, too, they fell. Sturm Ruger fell 5%. The share price for Vista Outdoor, maker of guns and ammo, fell 2%. These gun companies are feeling the heat because of activism. That is a feel-good story to start your Monday. Stay tuned, everybody. It's the Bill Press Show. We're going to jump right into it. On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. It is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. And what a day it is to sit in. There's so much stuff going on. Uh, Let me just, first of all, give you the details, get some of the dirty work out of the way. You got to go check out our podcast. Look at our podcast page, Bill Press Show. Just look for it in iTunes or go to BillPressShow.com. We did put out a podcast uh, on Saturday where we spoke to a buddy of mine, Maura Judkis. She's a food writer for the Washington Post. But she also wrote a piece about how her family grew up with Fred Rogers, Mr. Rogers. I loved this conversation. I learned about conspiracy theories I didn't even know. Like, there, Was that crazy? That was crazy. So if you, if you would like to find out if Mr. Rogers was a Vietnam sniper <laughs> covered in tattoos, then you must tune in, friends. You can only get that information on our podcast. You can only get this information firsthand from Maura Judkis, who grew up going to, like, barbecues with Mr. Yeah, Rogers. Yeah, she knew Mr. Rogers. Mm-hmm. And Peter's kind of overarching question was, was he really that nice? This and more. Yeah. <laughs> It's not that I don't like Mr. Rogers, because that's not the case at all. I'm just always skeptical of people who are that 
good. Look, and rightfully so. I mean, I think that there are a lot of people that exploit that um, yeah. trust and that vulnerability, especially when it involves children. Yeah. Um, but I think that Mr. Rogers seems like he was in the clear. Yeah. By all accounts, I can't find one person. I haven't read one story because there's a new documentary out about my, Mr. Rogers, right, which is why this conversation was happening. Right, it's right, not right. Just like not we, just because I'm a, Mr. Rogers on the brain. Yeah, right, right. <laughs> I'm not a children's TV enthusiast. <laughs> uh, but anyway, go check that out. Just go look for uh, Bill Press Show in iTunes. Check out our website, BillPressShow.com. I swear to you, I I went back and forth about whether or not I wanted to devote an entire segment to Sarah Huckabee Sanders. Not being able to eat dinner at a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia over the weekend. And you know what? Screw it. I'm going to. Because this story is completely insane to me. Let me just set the table. You like that? Little pun there? Yep. Got it. All right. Comedy is best (laughs) explained. That's what I've learned. Okay, here's the deal. There is a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia. uh, Close-ish to the Shenandoah Valley. Uh, it's called the Red Hen. Now, I want to be very clear. There is a Red Hen here in Washington, D.C., which is one of my favorite restaurants in the city. They have no affiliation. And if you want to see what a bad day looks like, go look at their Twitter feed. Because they had to put out a statement saying, like, this was not us. But still, you had all these MAGA chuds bombarding them, saying, like, hey, I can't believe you guys, blah, 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 blah. I can't believe you didn't serve her dinner. They have nothing to do with it. But here's the story. Sarah Huckabee Sanders walks into a restaurant. She's with her husband, and by all accounts, there's like four or six other people with them at the dinner table. They sit down. They order food. The kitchen staff calls the owner. And they said, hey, Sarah Huckabee Sanders is here. She's got people with her. We don't want to serve her. And the owner says, okay, first of all, I'm coming down. She was very close to the restaurant. She lives very close to the restaurant. She says, I'm coming down there to make sure it's her, and I'll handle this. She come, The owner comes in. She sees it's definitely Sarah Huckabee Sanders. She goes to the kitchen and says, what do you want me to do? What would you like me to do? Now, according to the Washington Post story, uh, the owner's name, uh, by the way, is Stephanie Wilkinson. Stephanie Wilkinson. She goes into the kitchen, and she goes, what do you want me to do? Now, she goes on to say that several employees of this tiny restaurant are gay. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has defended Donald Trump's anti-gay policies, including his desire to bar transgendered people from the military. We've seen Sarah Huckabee Sanders ruthlessly go out and defend the policy of ripping children away from their parents at the border as if that's something to be applauded. We've seen Sarah Huckabee Sanders go out and defend and lie about some of the most egregious, heinous acts ever perpetrated by the White House. So the staff took a vote. Should we kick her out? And the staff voted yes. So, this is a very important part of the story. I want to be very, very clear. When the owner showed up, she says that they already had cheese boards in front of them. They were eating dinner. Their main courses were already being prepared, which they went on to serve the party. 
And the owner went to Sarah Huckabee Sanders and said, took her aside, took her out to the patio, she said, and according to her, asked her to leave. The owner, Stephanie Wilkinson, told the Washington Post, I said, this is from the Post story, quote, I said, I'm the owner. I'd like you to come out to the patio with me for a word. They stepped outside into another small enclosure, but at least out of the crowded restaurant. Quote, I was babbling a little, but I got my point across in a polite and direct fashion, Wilkinson said. I explained that the restaurant has certain standards that I feel it has to uphold, such as honesty and compassion and cooperation. I then said, I'd like to ask you to leave. So Sarah Huckabee Sanders and her party got everything together, walked out of the restaurant, didn't pay. The, the owner specified, I don't want you to pay for this. I think, in fact, I, I saw somewhere that uh, in the piece that Sanders' immediate response was, that's fine, I'll go. She went back to the table, picked up her things, and walked out. The others at the table had been welcome to stay, but they didn't. They offered to pay, Wilkinson said. I said, no, this is on the house. So, cue the outrage. Here it comes. Sarah Huckabee Sanders goes on Twitter and says, this was yesterday morning, last night I was told by the owner of Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia to leave because I work for POTUS and I politely left. Her actions say far more about her than about me. I always do my best to treat people, including those I disagree with, respectfully and will continue to do so couple of things here first of all uh this administration they are undefeated in the art in the sport of punching down you are the press secretary of the united states to go on twitter and attack a small business is not a great look D- agree or disagree with the, what the restaurant did and i'm getting to my take on that agree or disagree it's a terrible, terrible look. And not only that, by the way, Walter Schaub, the former head of the U.S. government, U.S. Office of Government Ethics, says that that tweet was illegal. She violated ethics law when she used her official White House Twitter account to complain about service at a restaurant. Now, just to be clear, Sarah Huckabee Sanders has the press sec account which is the official White House account of the press secretary, no matter who it is. But then she also has the Sarah Huckabee Sanders Twitter account. So to use your government Twitter account is not, to to bash a small business is not legal. It's not legal. He says it's a clear violation of federal ethics law to name a specific business with the intent of personal gain or retaliation, which, ahem, this absolutely is. He compared Sanders' White House tweet to a federal law enforcement officer who pulls out a badge at a restaurant in a similar situation. In other words, hey, can I get a little preferential treatment? I got my badge here. I'm on the job. Help me out. Which you cannot do. So my question to you, and I would love to hear your thoughts on this. We should put up a poll, actually, on Twitter, at BP Show. At BP Show, we should put up a poll. 
Was the restaurant right to ask Sarah Huckabee Sanders to leave? Now, before I get your take on it, there have been many, many, many takes about this online. Uh, I saw Ari Fleischer, former White House press secretary, say, Oh, how dare we do this? This is horrible. This is terrible. This is so... Now we're only going to have restaurants that serve Democrats and restaurants that serve Republicans. I even saw David Axelrod. David Axelrod, this great progressive, quote-unquote, David Axelrod, took to Twitter saying... I'm amazed and appalled at the number of folks on the left who applauded the expulsion of press secretary and her family from a restaurant. This, in the end, is a triumph for real Donald Trump's vision of America. Now we're divided by red plates and do- red plates and blue plates. Wrong. Wrong. Senator Brian Schatz from Hawaii also tweeted, I, this is a great tweet, I just, heard a re- I just heard about a restaurant kicking Sarah Sanders out of a restaurant, and it's got me thinking that Democrats have to be talking about health care today and every day until the election. Yes, that, yes, that is the bigger picture, frankly. And I know that I'm going to come on here and I'm going to spout about Sarah Huckabee Sanders' service at a restaurant for half an hour, but we're going to get to the other issues, and we will. Should Sarah Huckabee Sanders have been kicked out of a restaurant because she works for Donald Trump? The answer is absolutely yes. It's good. It's a great thing that they kicked her ass out of a restaurant. Because, oh, let me name the ways. Let us not forget, by the way, and this is not an original point, You've heard this already, I'm sure, if you've been online at all over the weekend. This is the same party that went to the Supreme Court to fight for the right of an independently owned business to discriminate against people based on their beliefs. So you have a small business, the Red Hen, discriminating against Sarah Huckabee Sanders based on their beliefs, which is, you know, don't be a terrible, horrible person to minorities. I have no problem with them kicking her out. No problem whatsoever. And for everybody that's arguing like, oh, this is this is this does no good for the for civility and oh, you're just going to have democrat only restaurants, democrats only restaurant and republicans only restaurants. That's not the point. This is not a democrat versus republican issue. This is an issue of Donald Trump being the most uncivil human being to walk the face of the earth. And all of a sudden, these Republicans, oh, whatever happened to civility here in society? I can't go to my nice restaurant anymore. Kids haven't seen their parents for months because these monsters like Sarah Huckabee Sanders are fighting to keep them separated from their parents. Oh, but let's talk about civility, because she couldn't get her farm-to-table seasonal dinner over the weekend. Do I think it's bad? Hell no, I don't. I think it's good. I think it's awesome. And look, 
a lot of my good friends work in the service industry. I get the aspect of the restaurants that, like, you no, politics, put politics aside, right? If someone comes in, you, you're paid to take care of that person, and that's what the hospitality industry does, okay? I get that. I get that. All that being said, let's not act like Donald Trump hasn't done more to hurt the cause of civility in this country than literally anybody else. Literally anybody else. I would genuinely like to hear your comments uh, on Twitter, at BP Show, at BP Show. Look, and I'm one of the people, by the way, that I think that completely writing off Donald Trump voters is not productive for Democrats. I think that you, we as Democrats have to, let me put it this way. If we just endlessly sneer at these uh, Donald Trump voters, then we're never going to win another election against these guys. This is part of the, that is part of the reason that Donald Trump became president. But when you have a paid mouthpiece of the administration like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, who has lied to the American people, lied to the media about horrific policies over the, whatever, year and a half that they've been uh, in office, and you want to put your business out there and say, we're going to take a stand and we're not going to serve you, you people, fine. Zero problem with it. Be ready for the pushback, by the way, because that has happened at the Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia. By the way, if you go to their Yelp page this morning, which I'm anti-Yelp, but if you go to their Yelp page, there's a, the first thing you see is a poof, big old pop-up thing that says, active cleanup alert, <laughs> 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 which is pretty great. Uh, this business recently made waves on the news, which often means that people come to this page to post their views on the news. While we don't take a stand one way or the other when it comes to the news events, we do remove both positive and negative posts that appear to be motivated more by the news coverage itself than the reviewer's personal consumer experience with the business. So in other words, the Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, I think before the weekend had like four and a half stars on Yelp, mm -hmm. which is very, very well reviewed. People really, really loved it. If you go there now, it's got two stars. Because <laughs> it's got all these Donald Trump heads that are going there and being like, oh, I didn't realize. They're, by the way, they're all making the same. The same, the same comments. Yeah. I didn't realize bigotry was on the menu. Oh, my gosh. Look, this reminds me a lot of, um, does everybody remember Richard Spencer, the neo-Nazi, like, alt-right, whatever you want to call it, white supremacist. I like how you had to say, does everybody remember him? Because yeah. he has faded a lot from the news. He has faded a lot. Thankfully. But does anybody remember, and you can weigh in in our chat room or on Twitter, at BP Show, does anybody remember when he was kicked out of his gym? Yeah. Because he was seen working out, and this lady went up to management and was like, you know what, I'm actually not comfortable coming to a gym where you allow openly, like, deleterious figures to work out like he is harmful to america yeah. and the gym manager said you know what i agree you gotta go and so she went up to him and she was like actually you can't work out here anymore and look it's the same thing with sarah huckabee sanders i think that these um small businesses absolutely have the right to decide who can and can't when it comes down who can and can't use their services when it comes down to the fact that these people are hurting america they're hurting america they're hurting america and also 
if you go into a restaurant, Ray, any restaurant, you go into a restaurant and there is Stephen Miller. Sure. What do you do? I personally would probably leave. I'd leave. I would leave. I would leave. Yep. Like, how can you eat in the presence of these propagandists who are literally tearing at the foundation of America? Yes. I would leave. So as a business owner, you got to know that these people who are goblins, they don't have a right to eat in your restaurant. Right. And you run the risk of losing business because you are serving them in your restaurant. But look, now when I'm down in Lexington, Virginia, if ever there will come a day, you know where I'm probably going to eat? Red Hen. By the way, by the way, I'm going out of town in a couple of weeks, and I'm not going to be very far from here. And I will absolutely 100% go to Red Hen. Yeah. And I'm not saying that everybody can do that or, or should do that or whatever, but, like, I'm going to go there. Hell, yeah, I'm going to go there. But I, I also need to point out, again, this is not like kicking, let's just, like, Orrin Hatch out of a restaurant. Orrin Hatch, who's been a senator for a long, long time, has tied himself to Donald Trump pretty closely and has said some pretty terrible things but like he's a republican i find him to be fairly offensive but if i walk into a restaurant he was there i wouldn't like storm out or anything because i don't know that he's done anything let me, let me put it this way let me he doesn't have the power he doesn't to have the do power. what sarah huckabee sanders has and, done and 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 look is he a good guy no absolutely not but there is a major difference i think between these people that are freaking out and saying Oh, Democrats are refusing to serve Republicans. No, that's really not the case. By the way, uh, the greatest, the greatest response to all this came from who else? Duh, Maxine Waters. Republicans are freaking out about this. Maxine Waters basically said, like, I want to see more public harassment of Trump officials. Hell yes. She was at a uh, uh, in her district over the weekend. She said, Trump is sacrificing our children. She again called for Donald Trump's impeachment. And she says, <laughs> quote, already you have members of the cabinet that are being booed out of restaurants. They have protesters taking up at their house, and they're saying, no peace, no sleep, no peace, no sleep. And guess what? We're going to win this battle because you try and quote the Bible, Jeff Sessions and others, you don't know the Bible at all. God is on our side, on the side of the children, on the side of what's right, on the side of what's honorable. So, like, this to me is, and by the way, all the MAGA dummies are freaking out, by the way. They're freaking right on out. And it's so funny to watch. Like, Jack, um, I don't even know how you say that that dork's last name, Posobiec, this, that, that like, uh, Donald Trump apologizer. Mm-hmm. He, like, put out a tweet that was just like, getting scary out there, folks. <laughs> Everybody be, every, <laughs> yeah, here, here it is, here it is. This is what he tweeted over the weekend. Uh, Getting scary out there, folks. Um, make sure your family and home is ready in case it comes. It. The libs are going to get you. Yeah, the libs are coming. <laughs> By the way, this is all because a lady got kicked out of a restaurant. 
Okay. Like, they're ready. So immediately all the replies are, I'm locked and loaded. Come and get some. I'm ready, Jack. Let's do this. Maybe it's time for us to get more guns. Canned food. This is what one person responded to him. I got canned food, bottled water, and lots of ammo. Let's roll. All because Sarah Huckabee Sanders got kicked out of a nice restaurant that these gomers would never eat at anyway. Oh, God. Yeah, oh, like God. I feel like I'm perpetually at a loss for words for the levels of stupidity that we have reached like on public discourse. Uh, by, uh, by the way, go, finish, 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 finish. No, I just mean like this is the party that wants to deny basic human rights to people based on the color of their skin, yeah. their gender, just anything, sexual orientation. Like, Name it. Yeah. <laughs> they want to discriminate and they want it to be a law that you are able to discriminate. But then when it comes to a luxury, which really eating at a restaurant is, yeah, that's what they're going to get upset that, over. Yeah. It's just so dumb. It's borderline incomprehensible. Yeah. And so to me, it's like this is the this is the full ethos of the Republican Party these days. We're going to create and enforce a code of conduct, code of conduct that we have zero interest in abiding by. We are going to act all upset and put out because of this one small inconvenience. But then if you get mad because we're... Because mm, somebody like Kim Davis is denying you right. the right to get married. Right, right. But, like, if Democrats rightfully lose their minds because we're ripping children off of their mother's breast at the border and not letting them see their and mother. And locking them in cages and locking them indefinitely. In cages. But if that happens, then it all of a sudden becomes, oh, the snowflakes are triggered. This is crazy. And by the way, if you think that it was wrong for the restaurant to kick Sarah Huckabee Sanders out, that that's okay. I, I, I honestly, that's fine. I disagree. I think that you are able to make that judgment call as a private owner or a, a, a private business owner. Uh, if someone is that nasty and that ugly and that... Uh, and has worked so hard to make this happen, these horrible things that have happened here in America, and sell them to the American people, yeah, you could say, like, no, I don't want that in my restaurant. I don't want that. And they're not kicking her out based on her sexual orientation or the fact that she's just a Republican or anything like that. And if you want to talk about the civility in this country, take a look at your own president. Take a look at what Donald Trump has said. So, no, I don't feel bad for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And I think that the restaurant is cool and good and should be applauded. And more restaurants should kick these animals, to use Donald Trump's phrase. Oh, gosh. And she also got a free meal. Let's not forget that. She also got a free meal. She also got a free meal. Which is more than she deserves. And by the way, I looked at the restaurant. Menu looks great. Not cheap. 
No, it's not cheap. And a party of, what was it, seven or eight? Uh, like seven or eight. Yeah, it's not a small tab for a small business to just write off. Yeah. Good. Good. I think that the owners should be applauded. I think if you can get to Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, by God, you should go. <laughs> and let's stop feeling sorry for Sarah Huckabee Sanders. And you know what's going to suck? Is Donald Trump is going to tweet about this today. I feel almost certain he's going to tweet about it today. He's probably trying to craft it right now. You know he is. Laying in bed. And it's going to come up. Is there, if there's, I'm, I, yeah. I'm sure there's a press briefing today. It's going to come up in the press briefing. Can we just take a moment to imagine the president of the United States lying in bed at 730 on a Monday morning? Ugh. Oh, my gosh, Peter. Ugh. I don't, you know, I don't do Twitter that much anymore, and I damn sure don't follow Donald Trump and any of that stuff. Uh, so if he tweets about it and you see it, I'm so, on top of it. Somebody let us know. Not that I want to make myself any crazier, but just give us a heads up. Find us on Twitter at BP Show at BP Show. Good grief, we got lots of comments rolling in on this. We're going to get into some of those when we return. Uh, and we will also talk about, oh yeah, also the horrible immigration policy that Sarah Huckabee Sanders is helping sell to the American public. It is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. We're going to take a very quick break. We will be right back. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hello, everybody. Thank you for watching The Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. We've got so much to talk about, not just Sarah Huckabee Sanders' very bad weekend where she got kicked out of a restaurant, but we did spend the first uh, half hour talking about that. We got lots of comments. Uh, we did put up a poll. We'll read the uh, results of that poll a little bit later on in the program. Was the restaurant right to ask press secretary to leave? Uh, already some people are responding to that, just saying yes, of course. Uh, Newman on Twitter says McDonald's should stop serving Trump. Well, that's a that I mean that's just a business decision on their part. There's so much McDonald's he orders um, that that would be a real that would be a real problem for them. Uh, also, I mean you can't really profile like every 22 year old in a suit going into a McDonald's <laughs> not necessarily a Trump staffer. Right, Trump Trump does not walk in himself. Right, he has exactly. people for that. Uh, Kim, however, says disagree. It was wrong for the baker because that was discrimination. It was correct for the restaurant because they asked her to leave because she's a lying piece of crap that was sticking up the place with her 1980s or her 1880s views. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Um, Chris says if it's okay to choose not to make a cake for religious reasons, it must be okay not to serve someone who is morally bankrupt for moral reasons. Uh, and I read some tweets from some uh, MAGA chuds who were very concerned about the coming war because a lady was kicked out of a restaurant. Walker Ogden says, well, I'm listening to Peter read some of the tweets. It reassures me that there is no shortage of morons in the United States. Uh, thank you very much for your comments. Find us on Twitter at BP Show, at BP Show. Find me on Twitter at Peter Ogburn. And find our guest on Twitter at D Lind. She is senior reporter at Vox. Dara Lind. Dara, how are you? Uh, it has been a week. It has been, yeah. It's barely Monday. It's, yeah, it's not <laughs> and even it's quite already Monday. been a week. Yes, exactly. But it's true. I mean, it's this is just. I mean, we. It's right. so hard to just keep up with this stuff. Right. I mean, you know, the the story of the weekend, as far as I'm concerned, is that the Trump administration uh, 
made the very unusual move of proactively sending out a new policy to press. And of course, they did it on Saturday night. And so we all spent Sunday trying to figure out what the heck they meant, which, you know, that this is not super unusual. But uh, it does mean that that you have me at the point in the news cycle where we're beginning to realize that what was initially hailed as a very, you know, positive kind of policy move on the family separation front was not in fact <gasps> as quite as kind to people as it seemed. Well, now, nah, I am surprised at that news, Dara. You're right. As Claude Rains said in Casablanca, <laughs> I'm shocked. Shocked! <laughs> shocked! <laughs> okay, to walk us through this because yes. it was real. God, I guess it was last week that we got this executive yeah. order. Uh, and you saw a lot of people applauding it and mm-hmm. saying this is great and this is wonderful. And that lasted about... Mm, Six hours, right? Before people go, oh my God, this this is right. No, and and no one, no one in the administration appeared to have any idea. Uh, mm. It's not clear that anyone who was kind of in one of the several agencies who's been involved in the family separation and prosecution had much of an idea before the executive order was signed that there was going to be one. So while there's all of that chaos, there, are, as far as I'm concerned, kind of two big policy fights shaping up. Mm. One front is that. The Trump administration, the kind of thrust of the executive order was something that the Trump administration has been saying for a long time, which is what we really want is to keep families together in immigration detention for as long as it takes until they finally get deported, which is not currently legal. Um, oh, so, what? Uh, so they're they're trying to go back to court to get the the judge who told President Obama that he couldn't do that in 2015 to admit that she was wrong and that they should she should in fact be allowed to do that. So that's kind of Trumpiest front one. move ever. Trumpiest it's, move ever. It it's really a heck of a legal filing. They they really do. They kind of toggle between. Well, you couldn't possibly have predicted that it would be such an emergency right now. When bear in mind apprehensions are lower than it, they were yeah. when she made the ruling in 2015, and saying that her ruling sent the wrong message to people that it was okay to come into the United States, which is ironic given that a lot that part of her reasoning in 2015 was that you couldn't detain people to send a message to other people. So like that's kind of the one front on which this is shaping up. The other front is what happens to the families that have already been separated. Yeah. And it's, you know, it had become increasingly clear before Trump signed the executive order that they did not have any process in place for unification, that there wasn't really a plan for that. They now have said that parents will be reunified with their children by having both of them deported together. So what that means in mm. practice is, remember, a lot of parents who are kind of who have are trying to stay in the U.S. are doing so because they're trying to pursue asylum claims. So about, you know, there are a little over 2,000 families that the government says are still separated. And so that's a lot of parents who are kind of being now forced to make the choice between do they continue to pursue their asylum claims when that doesn't offer a guarantee that they'll be reunited with their children while they do so. And like may, you know, that that often may mean that they are going to have to be separated from their children for the months or years it may take to pursue that claim. Or do they agree to withdraw their asylum claim, agree to withdraw their child's legal case, because that's now a separate legal case to stay in the United States, you know, kind of give up on both of those rights and hope that the government is telling the, you know, can can actually guarantee that it can get them deported together. Oh, my God. I mean, that 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 is uh, it's maniacal. It is so. It makes no. I mean, it makes no. I mean, I, 
I don't want to say it makes no sense because it, it, it really, I mean, you don't have to look that hard to find out, like, why it makes sense. Right. I mean, bear in mind Trump. that even before any of these concrete policies started getting put into place, both Donald Trump and Jeff Sessions were saying a lot of these people are coming in and seeking asylum, but they don't really have deserving asylum claims. They don't, you know... Jeff Sessions has been trying to narrow the legal grounds on which you can get asylum mm. for domestic violence or gang violence because those are, you know, non-state actors that are persecuting you. Uh, they are kind of at the same time that they were out there saying while family separation was in full effect, well, you're totally OK as long as you come in at a port of entry and present yourself legally for asylum. They really are trying pretty aggressively to stop the particular people who are seeking asylum being like, families and and kind of women and children from the Northern Triangle from being able to legally qualify for that. So this is of a piece with that, but it's using, you know, family reunification as a tool in the same way they were using family separation as a tool for the last couple of months. Okay, I have to interrupt and I have to, because I, I knew this was going to happen, Donald Trump has tweeted about the Red Hen restaurant. Okay, go for so it. So I just have to read this really quickly yep. because this is such a Trumpy tweet from Donald Trump just a moment ago. The Red Hen restaurant should focus more on cleaning its filthy canopies, doors, and windows, parentheses, badly needs a paint job, rather than refusing to serve a fine person like Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I always had a rule. If a restaurant is dirty on the outside, it is dirty on the inside. You know what? The president ought to spend more time figuring out this manufactured immigration crisis yeah. than tweeting insults about a local small business. Yeah. I am going to take the counterintuitive position that it is probably not the best idea for Donald Trump to continue to get involved in immigration policy. <laughs> given that yeah, right. Donald this Trump's last Going thoughts on, on immigration limb. policy were that it should not be legal to seek asylum in the United States. Which is perfectly legal. <laughs> right. It's right, perfectly. Like, I mean, like, like this is this argument, this, this point is not being made enough, I don't think. <laughs> like, these people that we are detaining and separating from their children, all of that stuff, uh, I want to play two clips, uh, uh, Ray. The first one is from uh, Senator Bob Menendez from New Jersey, where he just says, this is not a crime. Seeking asylum is not a crime under our law, but President Trump has made it so. And Dolores Huerta, who we had right here, right in the chair you're sitting in right now, oh, there, last, last week, she was here. Living legend. And she comments on this. Do not uh, label all of these refugees as illegals because they are not. They are legally trying to get asylum in the United States of America. There is a process that this happens and it is legal. Yes. And we are making it illegal just because. Right. You know, the, the line that Sarah Sanders, that Jeff Sessions, others have used is, if you cross between ports of entry, you are committing a misdemeanor. And if you really had a legitimate asylum claim, you would be coming at a port of entry to do that. Uh, which, yes, it is true that you that even though it's legal to claim asylum after crossing illegally, that is a misdemeanor. Whereas if you go to a port of entry and present yourself, you're not. But most of the ports of entry where people crossing in are most common have had reports over the last couple of weeks that people are being told that they can't come in because they're full. That they are not, you know, and in some cases they're actually being like given numbers, but in, in cases in Texas, they're just being told, no, I'm sorry, you can't do this. You know, maybe after they wait outside, out, you know, at the crossing mm. for a couple of weeks, they will eventually get let in. But there's enough evidence that 
either they just don't have the capacity, but they're not building up that capacity while they are building up capacity to detain immigrant (laughs) kids and families, (laughs) or there's something else weird going on here, and there is some kind of effort to restrict crossings at ports of entry at the same time that they're adopting this zero-tolerance attitude toward people crossing between them. It's not... You know, even if you accept that, even even if they're being totally legit about not having space, there is kind of a question of like, why isn't helping people get through legally the priority that you guys are setting? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. I want to read a tweet from Donald Trump that he tweeted yesterday morning. Um, here it is. We cannot allow all of these people to invade, invade our country. When somebody comes in, we must immediately, <clears throat> with no judges or court cases, bring them back from where they came. Our system is a mockery to good immigration policy and law and order. Most children come without parents. And then he goes on. <laughs> Typical Trump non sequitur at the end there. Yeah, right. Like, it makes but, no um, sense. So, right. So, so, there, so there are two levels on yeah. which this is hilarious. Uh, the, the first one is that... Jeff Sessions and Republicans in Congress have both understood that the biggest obstacle to getting people deported quickly is that there aren't enough immigration judges and the immigration courts are super backlogged. So, like, hiring more immigration judges so that people who are arrested can be deported more quickly has been a hallmark of Republican plans (laughs) on this for several years. Which is grotesque. So now that Trump is... Yeah, I mean, there is a good government argument here. You know, I think Democrats have also agreed that it's very important to hire more judges. It's just a question of what you're doing. Four, yeah. right. Um, but, you know, Trump appears to have recently realized that that was a thing and decided it was a bad idea. This is like, he's now also said verbally a couple of times that, like, I don't want new judges. So it, that's, that is kind of counterproductive to his administration's broader agenda. The other le- level on which this is hilarious is that both with the court case where they're trying to get family detention extended for a greater period of time and in all of the other fronts in which the Trump administration is in court over immigration, such as, for example, the travel ban case that the Supreme Court is, you know, hopefully going is, is needs to rule on before the end of the session. And given that today is the last official day for opinions until they unless they extend it, you know, may it rule, rule on today. The question in those lucky. cases often is Donald Trump says a lot of things that indicate that his administration may not care much about the rule of law. Do we take Donald Trump's statement seriously as a measure of administration policy? The Solicitor General, Noel Francisco, spent an hour at the Supreme Court in April saying, no, I promise you, for the travel ban we had an interagency cabinet process, the president was not, you know, the president didn't dictate the terms of this and made the strongest case that one possibly could, you know, laying that out. And in the time between late April and now, there has been a lot of yeah. evidence that Donald Trump, in fact, is trying to dictate the terms of the process. So it's really not clear. And, you know, one of the big questions facing the Supreme Court in this case has been how much do you consider outside evidence? But like the Trump administration's case on that on the travel ban is a lot less strong than it was at oral argument exactly because the president can't keep his mouth shut. I, I think that that is such a good point that you can apply to literally anything that happens out of the White House. And it's that, you know, there are people who have dedicated their entire careers to these issues, good or bad, right? right? Like, even if you're on the wrong side, if you're on the bad side from our perspective of the immigration debate, 
they've been doing this for a long time. They are professionals. They know the law. They know how to sell it. They know what they're, you know, like they kind of know. Right. What My operating assumption has been that anything coming out of DOJ under this administration has been thought through because Jeff Sessions has been doing this for an extremely right. long time. Jeff Sessions knows what he's doing on this. Right. But Donald Trump can't take a back seat. He just can't. He can't let anybody else run the operation. It was like the, it's like the North Korea thing, right? Like you've got diplomats, foreign policy nerds who have been doing this for a long time. Nobody could get any credit except for Donald Trump. Right. Nobody. It's got to be all about Trump all the time. And that's what's going to bite him in the ass, I think. I mean, I think. We'll see. So so the thing about the Supreme Court is you know, I don't tend to love reading tea leaves from oral arguments, but my gut is that if they rule in favor of the administration, it's going to be because uh, Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kennedy both appeared to be concerned that if they limited the executive branch's authority to do this kind of thing now, mm -hmm. that there would be a case in the future where it would really be a problem for national security. In other words, if they rule in favor of the administration, it will be because they're more worried about the next about the presidency as an institution about future presidents than they are about this particular president and it's i don't you know we don't know where they're going to come down on that but it does raise the question okay do they have a particular case in mind where they think there's going to be a more abnormal president or are they just kind of determining that this is not you know, they're just kind of yeah. assuming that Trump is normal and going from there rather yeah. than saying this is actually a case in which we need to not assume that the president is acting in the way a president normally would. I want to ask you a, a question that is difficult for a lot of our listeners and viewers and 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 progressives in general. Uh, Donald Trump and a lot of Trump allies have gone out and said that, no, Obama put kids in cages, too. Uh, you wrote a piece, what Obama did with migrant families versus what Trump is doing, and did that pave the way, did Obama's policies pave the way for Donald Trump's policy? How true, let's start first of all, yeah. how true is that statement that Obama put kids in cages too? So, it's funny because this, a, lo a lot of the first images that came out that were horrifying people were in fact images from 2014, but the the putting kids in cages has kind of come to symbolize a lot of different policies. Sure. So what Obama was dealing with was a genuine, very sharp, in, or not sharp, but, but to the point of not being able to, for the system to handle it, increase in the number of people under 18 coming to the U.S. without adults. Mm -hmm. And so they had a, care, a capacity problem that resulted in them having to keep a bunch of kids in temporary Border Patrol facilities that looked a lot like the temporary facilities that we're now seeing kids put in under the family separation policy. The difference is that the Trump administration doesn't have a an huge increase in people coming in. It increased the number of unaccompanied kids by designating them unaccompanied by separating them from their parents. So uh, like okay. there is, you know, who where the capacity problem came from is different in both those cases, but the fundamental thing to understand about the difference in what their kind of agendas were, what what their their strategies in responding to this were, is Obama did take a mostly punitive approach to this. They the Obama administration said very firmly that they believed that the most important thing for them was to stop families and children from trying to come. That the journey was so dangerous that they needed to send the message that if they tr if they got here they couldn't stay, so that they wouldn't even try. Um, so they did engage in widespread detention of families they you know stood up 
very quickly a facility in a federal law enforcement training center in New Mexico that was 700 beds in a few in a matter of weeks. They opened a couple of new family detention centers in Texas. But that's when the judge stepped in and said, we're going to interpret this standing court ruling about the treatment of children in immigration detention to say that not only children who aren't with their parents, but even children who are with their parents need to be released Mm -hmm. within about 20 days. So what Trump is doing now is kind of trying to get back to the point that Obama was at in 2014, where this court precedent isn't applying. So it's actually less that Obama paved the way than that because Obama was so aggressive, there are now constraints on Trump's power that wouldn't have existed if Obama hadn't been so punitive. That's amazing, actually. Yeah, that's kind of fascinating. It really it really is. And, you know, this is if you could absolutely see a world where the Trump administration went President Obama had the right idea. This really was the right way to would have been the right way to address this. The court stepped in and stopped it. They shouldn't have done that. This is a national security issue. Of course, because the Trump administration is allergic to believing that President Obama did anything right. right. They are now in the bizarre (laughs) position of pretending simultaneously that President Obama caused this problem and that President Obama had the right idea on family detention. Right. right. Oh, God. Okay. All right. We got a couple minutes left. Uh, Let me ask you this. Where do we – not that you can see where this is going to go in these crazy news, but where do we go this week? Because so much has, of the attention has shifted to Congress, mm-hmm. and Congress has to do something. What can Congress do, and what will we see them do in the sort of immediate short term to try and right. remedy this So the nightmare? simplest thing Congress can do is just to pass a law that says – that would supersede the court ruling that we've been talking about on family detention that, that would say it, it – that – you know, as a matter of federal law, uh, families can be kept in immigration detention just the same as adults can be kept in immigration detention. Uh, you know, that is a very straightforward thing they could do. The Trump administration has been asking them to do that because it's not super confident that it will win this court case, especially not like within 20 days. Um, of course, Donald Trump takes to Twitter every other morning and says Republicans don't even bother. Wait till November. We'll have a massive red wave and then we can do immigration. So Congress has been extremely confused because Remember, very few Republicans in Congress are extremely are super eager to stick their necks out on immigration, which is a controversial issue that they're always in danger of pissing off their base on if they don't feel the administration has their back. So mm. they may do that. They may even, you know, the House is finally taking up some of the broader bills that they were contemplating during the last immigration fight. Um, you know, bills that would, in addition to dealing with family detention, also restrict legal immigration, provide legalization for, you know, recipients of the temp- of the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, uh, they may vote on any of those, but those votes keep getting delayed because they keep dealing with mutiny from their members every time the president says, no, really, don't mm. pass an immigration bill. We can get a better deal next year. Oh, God. I, I want to play um, a clip, Ray, from Donald Trump. He had a, a, a an event for the Angel Families, which is a new term. It is not. Is it he's, not? It's the first I've heard yeah, of it. Yeah, he's, the first I've he's heard actually it. been using it. He's been appearing with these pe- people since, uh, I think he first used that term at the 2016 Republican National oh, okay. Convention. But they have have been engaged as an organization, and he actually, he's been working with those families since his, literally a few weeks after he launched his presidential campaign, he did a big rally with them. The, the idea here is these are families who lost a loved one to uh, due to violence from someone who is was here illegally. Uh, He had a couple of them up on stage with him at this event, and here he talks about them. They're not separated for a day or two days. They are permanently separated. 
because they were killed by criminal illegal aliens. These are the families the media ignores. By the way, all of the families were up there and they had a photo of their loved one that had that was no longer with us and Donald Trump had his big dumb signature on every photo of every victim. And and contum, uh, or complimented the looks of one, right? Said yeah. it was like Tom Selleck but better looking something yeah. like that. Like Like what in the world? Yeah, but the the thing about the media not paying attention is, you know, like I said, these are people who Donald Trump has been trotting out for years yeah. and it's they've been used to to push his immigration agenda. And, you know, they, they clearly are consenting to this. But he, during the DACA debate, was saying these are the real dreamers or the kids, you know, the people who were never allowed to live their lives because they were killed. He is now pointing, making them the counterpoint to separated families. At a certain point, especially when it's the same people over and over again, and, you know, the stats that he tries to offer to the scope of the problem are vastly overstated, it starts seeming really threadbare to keep going back to this. Yeah, yeah. Vox.com is where you can read Dara's great, great work. Nobody writes about this better than you do. Thank you so much, Dara Lynn, for coming in. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, friends, don't be a stranger. Keep up to date with all of The Bill Press Show happenings around the clock on social media. Here's how. You can follow us on Twitter at BP Show or on Facebook at www.facebook.com slash Bill Press Show and on YouTube, youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. And remember, if you haven't already done so, make sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, please rate and review the show. That means a lot to us. And thanks so much for your support. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Yes, indeed, it is The Bill Press Show. Thank you so much for tuning in. My name, well, my name is Peter Ogburn. I'm sitting in for Bill Press today. Bill is out this week, taking a little summer vacation. We are fully into summer now. We've, we've gone through the summer sol- solstice. Uh, it was definitely summer over the weekend. Uh, here for our summer celebration. Joining me in studio is White House correspondent at Yahoo News, Hunter Walker. Hello, Hunter. Hey, Peter. How are you doing? I'm doing, well, I'm doing okay. <laughs> <laughs> we'll take it. It's Monday morning. We'll take like, it. I'm doing great. I'm not doing great. <laughs> I'm doing all right. Uh, you can follow Hunter on Twitter at Hunter W. You're in, you're in here for the hour. I'm in here for the hour. Friend of, of Peter. Friend of Bill. Friend of Peter. Uh, I know both. Yeah, no, you're a friend of mine and a friend of Bill. You're a friend of Ray's. No, pick, Hunter. Yeah, you hey, have Ray. to pick. Who are you friends with, me or Who Bill? Who are your friends? Uh, I'm going to go with Ray. I'm going I'm to choose option fair. three. Yeah, totally fair. Totally fair. Uh, I want to play a clip, and we're going to talk more about this um, uh, uh, when we get into the segment, but we've got a couple minutes here before we really get rolling. Donald Trump, when he was campaigning, uh, this was in Nevada, where he once again went back to attacking Elizabeth Warren. Uh, Pocahontas, you and mean. he used yes. his favorite <laughs> phrase to describe Elizabeth Warren here. And, and by the way, he's talking about Jackie Rosen, one of the uh, people running against Dean Heller in Nevada, uh, and he has a new nickname for her as well. So he really gets as much stuff as he can into this clip. Wacky Jackie, that's what you want for your senator? She wants to raise taxes, and I think somebody said she's in Nevada right now 
campaigning with Pocahontas. There he is. There he is, Pocahontas. He calls Elizabeth Warren Pocahontas again. I do like Wacky Jackie because I think so, yeah, sometimes Wacky Jackie has a ring to it. Yes, some of these have been phenomenal. I mean, the gold standard remains low energy jab. Yes, I mean that. Wow. I mean that was good. I mean it 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 captured something about the man's very essence. And he never got his energy back after that. Yeah, and and some of these that exclamation have just point been, isn't cool and mean. You know, it feels yeah, right. like he's going back to the well too many times. Yeah. Uh, so I, I got to say, you know, Pocahontas, all right, that one might just be offensive, yeah. but I got to give props to Wacky Jackie. I like well, that. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Wacky Jackie, I thought, stuck. But, but the Pocahontas thing, it's, I, it's one of those things that Donald Trump does because a it's it's somewhat effective right because uh elizabeth warren has gotten herself into trouble in the past with the with these comments uh, about where her native american heritage yeah and it also quote unquote triggers the libs like it drives (laughs) liberals absolutely crazy so like i don't think he's gonna back off of it I mean, there's so much happening here. First off, I, w- I would um, direct all of your listeners. Um, my former colleague, Liz Goodwin, who's now at the Boston Globe, has just written a really awesome piece looking at the whole Liz Warren situation. Yeah. Um, and it's really interesting because Liz is coming to this as a you know, white Texan yeah. and basically talking about sort of these handed down tales of lore people had that yeah. there was Native blood in their family. Right, right, um, right. And, you know, it, it, it's... I, I think it is true that we have to say that Elizabeth Warren has has fudged here yeah, a little bit. She has. Um, you know, certainly a lot of people do have this, you know, history clanking around in their family. Yep. You don't then put it on any type of job application. Right. Certainly if you haven't verified it. And in her case now, it's been fully unverified and she won't let it go. Right. So that that's level one. Yeah. Is, is, I mean, that, we just have to accept that. I mean, that's just true. Yeah. I mean, and and personally, I think, you know, especially given that a lot of Americans have this in their families and know about this, yeah. she could have handled this so much better years ago going like, oh, my God, yeah. this was always part of my family history. Yeah. Didn't know. Yeah. But Trump just keeps going at it. And if another president had done this, like, this is just one of those picture another president saying this moments. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's uh, it's not something he's going to let go. And we've got a lot to talk about here on The Bill Pressure. We're going to take a very, very, very quick break. We'll be back in like 10 seconds. Download our podcast, search for The Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is The Bill Press Show. That's right. Don't forget to check out our podcast. Uh, It's up on iTunes. Just look for The Bill Press Show. Uh, And yes, it is important to rate, review, and subscribe when you get it. It it helps us out uh, when you do that, and we really appreciate it. I'll mention again, we did a weekend podcast that we put up where we talk about Mr. Rogers' 
Mr. Rogers, because there's a new documentary out uh, called Won't You Be My Neighbor? And we talked to Maura Judkiss from the Washington Post, whose dad used to work with Mr. Rogers, and she knew him as a kid. A lot of people say they knew Mr. Rogers when they were a kid. I definitely knew Mr. Rogers as a kid. She actually knew Mr. Rogers when she was a kid. (laughs) So she tells us the whole story. Was he actually as nice of a human being as he appeared to be? You'll have to go listen to the podcast. Spoiler alert. Yeah, he was. <laughs> and yet I still would want to listen to that in detail. It's good. It's a it's a it's a really great podcast. She has a lot of great stories about growing up around Mr. Rogers. That is still up. Uh just go subscribe to the podcast, look for the Bill Press show. I I'm not I was never really Mr. Rogers guy. I totally was. <laughs> Were you really? That's cool. I mean I just I never really got into it. And then by the time that I got older, I look back on it and I'm just like, I don't trust you. <laughs> I don't trust people that are that good and pure. I have these like semi-buried half-memories of his show. Yeah. I used to really dig the puppets. Yeah. And I was always really bored with the field trip because it would be to, like, a pencil factory. <laughs> it was, like, a really crappy field trip. But right. other than that, Mr. Rogers was dope. <laughs> I loved the train that would bring you into the puppet land. Into the puppet realm? Yeah. What, what was it called? It was, like, the... Ima- what was it called? I don't know, but I just remember really enjoying that part as a child. I just remember Madam. Remember the puppet Madam? Yeah. Yeah. That's all I remember. No. (laughs) That sounds like a very different show than I watched, Peter. (laughs) (laughs) Not that kind. That was the after hours. Not that kind. This is why Peter doesn't trust. You sure that wasn't the Eddie Murphy sketch? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm thinking about SNL. Listen, (laughs) listen to the podcast. No, I don't mention Madam in the podcast. Madam was one of the puppets. She was one of the. uh, And then you had the. Sure, she was. Whatever. (laughs) I imagine the whole thing. Uh, Hunter Walker is with us from Yahoo News. You can follow him on Twitter at Hunter W. Hunter, I have to ask you about which is impossibly one of the biggest stories of the day, Sarah Huckabee Sanders. I was going to actually preempt any big story you were going to suggest with that as yeah. a joke, but mm-hmm. I, but yeah. Yes. I, I mean, look, it's really not the biggest story of the day, but I, but it's worth talking about. It is worth talking about, actually. Sarah, in case you did not know, in case you were somehow living under a rock this weekend, Sarah Huckabee Sanders went to a restaurant in Lexington, Virginia, the Shenandoah area of Virginia. Uh, called the Red Hen, not the Red Hen here in Washington D.C., which is a fantastic restaurant. Not that Red Hen. She went there. The staff saw that she was there, and called the owner, who lived very close to the restaurant, asked the owner to come in, and they had taken a vote, and they wanted the owner to kick Sarah Huckabee Sanders out of the restaurant. They asked her to leave. Uh, it should be pointed out that she did eat food at the restaurant, and she was not charged for it. Not that that. I think there was a wine and cheese plate. There was a wine and cheese plate. They had already started cooking her main courses. Uh, And the owner says that she did eat the food there, and she asked her to leave. And and that Sarah Huckabee Sanders in the group offered to pay, but the owner said no. Uh, Sarah Huckabee Sanders yesterday morning said, uh, uh, tweeted, Last night I was told by the owner of Red Hen in Lexington, Virginia, to leave because I work for POTUS and I politely left. Her actions say far more about her than about me. I will always do my best to treat people, including those I disagree with, respectfully, and will continue to do so. Donald Trump this morning, as as I predicted, which is not that hard of a prediction to make, but he tweeted, The Red Hen Restaurant should focus more on cleaning its filthy canopies, doors, and windows. <laughs> no, he didn't. Yes, he did. I was driving here. Yeah. Parentheses, badly needs a paint job. Rather than refusing to serve a fine person like Sarah Huckabee Sanders, I always had a rule. If a restaurant is dirty on the outside, it's dirty on the inside. That's the tweet from the president 
of the goddamn United States of America this morning. This is what we have to worry about now. Okay, so I, I want... Let's unpack this. Go okay. ahead. I want to be a jerk here first. I want yeah. to be a buzzkill. Yeah, we talk about puppets. We talk about Stormy Daniels. We have a lot of fun on the show. I, I hope I don't lose my friend of Peter's status. Yeah. But I was just down in the coffee shop, and, and I heard people behind the espresso machine talking about how, you know, the child separation thing was done, and it showed that when people get angry, that's the ultimate legislative force in this country. Yeah. It is not done... There are some 2,000-plus children that are living without their parents right now. The government might not even know where we are, where they are. There's going to be no White House briefing today. We have very unsatisfactory answers on this, and that is everything to me yeah. right now. Yes. Um, and I only bring that up, and I'm only being such a huge buzzkill, because I feel like you know there's a certain strain in the White House that would rather talk about these gaffes and controversies and cultural dramas. Um, you know, Sarah was kicked out of a restaurant. Maxine Waters yeah. says, oh, good, like people should keep confronting the Trump administration in restaurants. This is quite literally a sideshow. With that being said, it's not I'm, – I'm not trying to totally, like, like you know, say we shouldn't talk about it because, like you said, the president's tweeting about it. This is what they're trying to do. But I, I have to begin by yeah. prefacing that way. I think that's fair, and that's how I started the show. I mean, look, there are a lot of things that are going on right now that are honestly more important. But I do think that the point needs to be made Yeah, uh, that anytime that you see some GOP chucklehead saying, oh – Look at the libs. Aren't they triggered? Because yeah. look, watch these snowflakes get triggered. Because <laughs> all we're doing is taking six-month-old babies, ripping them <laughs> off of their mother's breast, and, allow, and not allowing the mother to see them for an indeterminate amount of time. That's That's not a triggering of a snowflake. That is an atrocity happening here. And for them to write that off as libs getting triggered, but when some woman is asked to leave a restaurant— Sarah Huckabee Sanders. They they act like they're, they're going to war. Yeah, like Jack Posobiec <laughs> went on Twitter and was like, "It's coming. Get ready. It's coming." Yeah, I mean, you know, he's in that weird thing that I call the magosphere, where magosphere. I like. Yeah, it. Uh, God knows what percentage of his audience is uh, not automated. Um, Fair. But, you know, this this Sarah thing did trigger. I, I'm seeing cable news chirons flash uh, by over our heads about it right now. Yeah, it's been on all morning. Yeah. yeah. So this is this is a mainstream discussion. And, and you know, personally, like I want to talk about the really important stuff going on with the kids. But but um, and I want to frame this discussion by saying it's a distraction. But but sure, let's have it, you know. And, and what I mean on that front is. You know, is Sarah right to be miffed? I guess I guess my perspective on this, and this isn't, you know, I think part of the reason they want to discuss this is it's impossible not to be anything but individual opinion. Yeah. I can't have an objective reported perspective Understood. on this because right. it's not a stat. It's not a policy. Right. It's, it's, it's all personal opinion. So I'll uncharacteristically give mine here, <laughs> which is that, you know, it's fine for Sarah to be miffed that she was kicked out of a restaurant. It's also fine for a restaurant owner that doesn't want to serve Sarah not to serve Sarah. Yeah. Um, you know, a lot of people have been pointing to the whole masterpiece cake shop thing. Sure. Um, and, you know, it's pretty hypocritical for any um, Republican who, you know, 
was up in arms that cake bakers have a freedom to not serve LGBT customers to be angry about Sarah. But you know what? Maybe the, my personal opinion, and this is as a guy with gay mothers, I think maybe the cake bakers are free to do that too. Sure. I think maybe everybody's free to say, you know what? I don't like you. I'm not serving you. Sure. And we're also free to say, oh, that's a jerk move. I have a weird libertarian streak. Yeah. A very, very small <laughs> weird libertarian streak where like, I, I do agree with you on that. Yeah. To a certain extent. So we should all be able to simply agree on this and say, you know what? Some people don't like each other. That's one way to express your views. If you run a business and you don't want to serve Sarah Huckabee Sanders, fine. Yeah. And you're right. She does have a right to be miffed. Yeah. And, you know, obviously, you know. And you know what? If you're that miffed, maybe don't go work for Donald right. Trump. And then this question gets into, you know, people who disingenuously say, but isn't that discrimination? No. If you have a business and you systematically say, I'm going to occupy this space of real estate and African-Americans right. systematically, um, you have a problem. But That's Sarah different. Huckabee Sanders is not a protected class. Right. Um, you know, you can even say, you, you can't say, I'm not going to serve LGBT people. Right. But you can say, I won't make this one wedding this cake. person. Yeah, yeah. Right, right, it's, right, it's, it's right. a tricky thing. Yeah. And so that's why I think, you know, this, you know, this discussion should be resolved fairly quickly. Someone expressed protest to Sarah Sanders. She was annoyed. We move on. Maxine Waters encouraged further protests. She didn't encourage violence. But instead, what we see is the administration attempt to take the discussion away from these children and bring it to, you know, um, Sarah was 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 affronted and Maxine is calling for people to murder us. Yeah. And and honestly, President Trump on the campaign trail has called for explicit violence way more than these these comments ever yeah. were. And it's just it's the whole discussion is so disingenuous and is irrelevant. My my final comment yeah. on this, then we will move on, yeah. is it, it this is, and I said this earlier, Republicans have a knack for creating and uh, policing this code of conduct yeah. that they have absolutely no interest in adhering to. And I think some people have rightfully pointed out that it's a complete asymmetrical warfare situation. Right. I mean, Donald yeah. Trump is the least civil person yeah. maybe in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> like, there is no civility among how Donald Trump does business. And so for the Donald Trump supporters to get all upset and up in arms over this— it's disingenuous. Yeah, and I so I best. and I'm glad you know I I don't I want to make sure it's clear with the listeners. Like when I say this is disingenuous and irrelevant, I think you and I are on the same page. Yeah. I am not faulting you for bringing it up because I guess we have to. We have to because um, it was what the president wanted the news cycle to be for the weekend. Yeah, but it's so important to like have this discussion almost in a meta way, you know. And now we have. And now we have, and we will move on. Yeah, we will move on. Uh, you have done some great writing about a part of the child separation story that hasn't gotten nearly enough coverage, uh, and that's the money. The money. The money. Yes. There are people getting really rich off of this horrible, horrible policy. I'll, I'll start, first of all, with the government grants at the Virginia detention facility, because you got to remember these detention facilities are all around the country, yeah. right? They're not just at the border. There are those tent cities. There are a hundred... So... so it's really important, if I may, just to preface this with two key facts. And this is This is really important for your listeners to understand that this is not over. Fact one, there are, and this is coming to me from HHS spokespeople, the Health and Human Services, um, there are 100-some facilities in 17 states. I am working on refining the list of 17 states and facilities. They haven't released that. 
Wow. The only way to really analyze this is looking at these government contracts and grants because that document is public. But they say through the for the privacy of the children, they will not precisely tell us. 17 states. 17 states. 17 and I, states. And Virginia's definitely won. Yeah. Um, all I can say is grants have gone to organizations in the District of Columbia. D.C. may be one. I'm not 100% sure. Another thing I'm not 100% sure about, and I was talking about this with um, Lawrence O'Donnell on Twitter last night, it is not clear how many children have been separated from their parents. Uh, yeah, we've seen a lot of numbers. Like yeah. there's the like 2,000-something number there, that's a... kicked around. Kirsten Nielsen said that there were 12,000, and out of those 12,000, 10,000 were, uh, were illegal, were, were full-on illegals, right. which not a great defense. So, so – you know, last week when reaching out to HHS, which runs this child migrant detention program, a thing yeah. America has, um, they told me there were about 11,000 children in total in custody. They have released various figures for the portion of that total that was separated from their parents. It roughly was around 2,300. I believe that was as of June 9th. Um, when President Trump signed that executive order, what they said to us was that, you know, the immediate question was like, okay, this is what you guys want to do going forward. What happens to these some 2,000 kids who've been yeah. separated? What are you doing on reunifications? And we don't have an answer to that, do we? No. So okay. so first off, um, they released some kind of roadmap this weekend, but mm. it's not really a clear process for reunifications. At it's, all. It, we just talked to Daryl yeah. Land from Vox about that, and it's murky at best. Right. And- also, I mean, within moments of us seeing the executive order, myself and I'm sure many, many other reporters hit them up and said, okay, what's happening to these kids and how many are there? Yeah. The answer I got is that they will have no special process, so there's nothing being done to reunify them, and no answer on how many there are. So so just let me preface all of this. We do not know how many kids this is that have been separated from their parents Probably around two thousand. So now, yes, the money. Where were we? <laughs> Sorry. Let's <laughs> yeah. Well, what one of the things that you've done is what I think a lot of people wanted to see reporters do. Mm -hmm. They're not just showing up at the briefing and getting answers from administration officials. You're looking at available contract data. It, it helps that the there's no briefing anymore. By Fair. The way. <laughs> there's right. one last week. There's none today. He's traveling a lot this week. They 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 seemed and and you know let me, let me just uh, why, why is it there one today? Is he traveling? So he's traveling okay. today. So there typically wouldn't be one today. For sure. Um, but that's going to be the case for a lot of days this week because yeah. he's kind of back on the trail. So it really seems like um, the White House prefers to have him on this campaign stage, yeah. surrounded by supporters, not taking questions, and they're cutting down on the briefing. Yeah. I, but you know what? Let me just plant a bug in their ear. Sarah, if you're listening from... Big the, fan of yeah. the show. Big, if, big fan if, of the show. If you're listening from the detention center, they've trapped you in outside the Red Hen. <laughs> um, <laughs> I hope you get home soon. Um, but, you know, when you don't have a briefing, I get to stay home and look in files and call sources. It it. it Gives us all a lot of extra time to investigate. And we've, I'm just going to plant that in the White House's ear. We've had so many reporters say that exact thing. That, like, we, like to, it, it's, a, it's a process to tie you guys up when you go to the briefing. Because, you, I mean, it's a whole process. you got to get there. you got to get situated. There's often late. 
Yeah, uh, which is not it, it, it purely eats, indicative of the Trump administration. It eats hours of your day, and that's part of why you know even when they are having it three days a week, I won't necessarily go each day. Sure, because you know I I can't sit in the basement of the White House and call sources and say I can promise you this is anonymous. Yeah, I, right, right, right. personally, even though we sort of have our own private web hookup at the White House, I'm not going to do sensitive yeah. emails or research on that web hookup. I think that's smart. Yeah, so it eats a ton of time. I do think it's valid to go. Um, so I do go a lot, but you know, yeah, sure. This is a great time for there not to be any briefings. So I'll, you, I'll just dig. <laughs> you've gone, yeah, you've dug. You've done some digging. Yeah. Uh, tell us what you found because uh, this again, this is what I was saying earlier. This is one of the parts of the story that I think is completely mm-hmm. unreported, mm-hmm. Uh, and it really is one of the most egregious parts of it uh, of the child separation policy. People are making a lot of money yes. off of this. Yes, so I a did, lot of money. I did two stories so far, and I think we've probably got um, a couple more coming. Um, the first was, you know, right in the early days of this, um, and I think a lot of reporters, we were sort of scrambling to figure out um, what was going on with this program, because as I was saying earlier, it's, it's pretty opaque. Um, and I found one government contract vehicle that went to five different companies, um, and this was for about $90 million, um, and it went to companies... One, um, I believe it was Comprehensive Health Services um, that is running the giant sort of tent facility for migrant children in Homestead, Florida. Another was just $3.6 million, and it went to a company called Southwest Key, and they are the biggest player in this. They're running Casa Padre out in McAllen and I believe like 25 other facilities. Um, nice. And then a couple other sort of support contractors um, that did transportation services and, and other, you know, that one was hiring nurses for these facilities. Um, and they were all, you know, making a lot of money. Um, and one of them, when I started calling, said, you know what? Um, and, and look, this is important to point out. A lot of these contractors are people who were involved in child detention during the Obama years. Yeah. Because we did do child detention during the Obama years. The key difference here is that, you know, people will remember the migrant surge of 2014. Mm. And there were children put in pretty bad conditions with the fences and the cages and the tin blankets and everything. Um, But those children had surged over the border largely unaccompanied. And in my conversations with HHS, they confirmed to me that... The current definition of unaccompanied is any child referred to them by Homeland Security. Uh, uh, <laughs> I mean, it's like Bill Cosby's definition of consent, right? Yeah, any any right. woman I like. Right, right, <laughs> right. right. Um, it's, yeah, completely nonsensical. Yeah, so so this is the unaccompanied, um, unaccompanied alien child program, they call it. Um, and this typically we have should... a program called yeah. the Unaccompanied Alien Child. Okay. Yes, and it goes back to Obama. Yeah. Um, but theoretically, it's supposed to be only used for kids who arrive here alone or for their own health and well-being need to be taken from their parents. So these are like kids where it's a clear case of abuse that we can see the second they arrive at the border. And and you know maybe they should be put in the foster system, right? Yeah. So some of these contractors, yeah. you know, I think have thought they were doing good or what have you. But, um, you know, now we dug in. and As long as the check's clear. <laughs> right. And, and you know, what's interesting about analyzing these contracts is, first off, you can see, for example, um, the facility in Homestead in Casa Padre, these facilities are new. And they the money started flowing last September. Um, and basically, the White House was laying the groundwork for an expansion 
of this program. Well, so, now, isn't that curious? Yeah, so when they talk about, you know, the other week when they were saying this wasn't a policy, we're not doing it, it's not intended, it's very important to keep in mind, first off, Reuters reported back in March 2017 that they were considering separating children and parents as a, de- as a deterrent to potential illegal migrants. John Kelly then confirmed that himself as former um, Secretary of Homeland Security. Keep in mind, he was Nielsen's boss before he was chief right, of staff. Right. He had her job, and he said on CNN, we're thinking about doing this. And then six months after those public murmurings, the money started flowing. So now I found these five contractors on one contract vehicle, um, and you can read that article on Yahoo, but this is the tip of the iceberg. As we started to dig in this, it really became clear that most of the money is actually not flowing from these contract vehicles. It's flowing from grants coming from the Department of Health and Human Services. Bloomberg has reported that that's about a $900 million budget every fiscal year. And the Southwest Key Company, where I found a tiny portion of what they got, they actually got $458 million in one year. So now I've started to... Oh, my God! Yeah, so now I've started to dig into that data. Keeping in mind, my first story just showing five companies that got 90 million that was the tip of the iceberg There's nothing now we're looking at these grants and and by the way again just as i was saying to you they haven't confirmed how many facilities there are so we're all the blind men looking at the elephant here yeah. you know and able to say that feels like a tusk and we're trying right. to paint a picture of this um and so now looking at these larger grants i did a second story there's this facility in shenandoah virginia um that is a jail there are three juvenile jails that are holding. I saw these this. Kids. It's in Staunton, Virginia, not far, by the way, from the Red Hen Restaurant where Sarah Huckabee Sanders. <laughs> yeah, I mean the, the Shenandoah Valley is a hotbed of immigration yeah. stories. Apparently, right now. apparently. Um, <laughs> but this is one of at least three juvenile jails that have been contracted to hold kids who are deemed. Um, it's deemed that they need to be placed in a more secure facility. Um, oftentimes in the current administration, this is happening because they're labeled as potentially being part of MS-13. Interestingly, one of the administrators from this juvenile jail uh, testified in front of Congress that most of the kids that are being labeled as part of MS-13 are found not to have gang ties. What? (laughs) So anyway, this facility, um, last October, um, there was a kid there who, who got put in the facility during the Obama administration, um, and because, again, we were using some of these same facilities and we did have a child detention program then. Um, and a sort of local lawyer in D.C. filed a suit on behalf of him and other kids at this jail um, saying that the conditions were inhumane, that they were stripped naked, that the guards watched them naked in their cells, that they were subjected to physical and verbal abuse, that they were subjected to general discrimination. I mean, just appalling what the lawsuit described as, quote, brutal, inhumane conditions. And I then used the data I found to map out that, and and this was incredible reporting by the Associated Press. They first surfaced this lawsuit. Mm. We then mapped out that in the wake of this lawsuit, the funding they were getting from the government actually increased. And they got four million in additional did. grants. Of course. And did. so far this year, they are so last year, 2017, they, they received more funding than any year under Obama. This year they're on pace to almost double what they got last year. So we are, you know, the anecdotally, and I haven't done, I literally have my laptop at my feet. As soon as I leave here, I'm diving back into these files. But um, anecdotally, what I've seen is that it seems like a lot of these, particularly the more secure facilities, um, our usage of them has expanded under Trump, even in this case where there were these abuse allegations. That blows my mind. 
And and it shouldn't, but it does. Yeah. So so you know, keep in mind. I, I know. I'm, I guess I'm. I, I feel like I'm a little less fun than we usually have here yeah, in the morning. Black, black cloud just came <laughs> into the studio. Um, but you know, this this kind of thing is why I, I don't have that much stomach to get into like a three hour debate about yeah. like you know how many courses like like what kind of dinner Sarah had on Saturday. That's I mean, fair. You know, the, there there are kids in jails and and in in these facilities um and we don't know and we have so many questions about them uh let's take a quick break white house correspondent at yahoo news hunter walker is in with me for the hour coming up we will be joined by staff writer at the atlantic van newkirk the second uh we will talk more about this immigration policy and also the as as van puts it the end of civil rights here in america uh, some more lighthearted fun stuff to talk about coming up here on the Bill Press Show with me, your host, Peter Ogburn. Stay tuned, everybody. We'll be right back. Download our podcast, search for the Bill Press Show on iTunes, and remember to rate, review, and subscribe. This is the Bill Press Show. It is the Bill Press Show. My name is Peter Ogburn, sitting in for Bill Press today. Thank you so much for tuning in. I am not doing it by myself. I have some guests here to help me out through the last half hour of the program. Hunter Walker stays with me, White House correspondent at Yahoo News. Follow him on Twitter at Hunter W. We're joined now by staff writer at The Atlantic, Van Newkirk II, good friend of the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Five Fifths. Van, good to see you. Good to see you. Thanks for coming in. Hunter, thanks for sticking around. Thanks for having me. So I want to start, first of all, with Van, uh, your piece, uh, The End of Civil Rights. More good news we're going to talk about here on the show, apparently. Uh, you talk a lot about Jeff Sessions. Mm-hmm. Uh, you talk a lot about the Department of Justice. And I, I love how you started out. It, it really was not that long ago that we were looking at these racial atrocities here in America. Uh, when you look at what happened in Ferguson and you look at like when we had the bandwidth to get upset about unarmed black children being shot by police. Uh, and how quickly things change. How quickly they change. Yeah. What has changed? So I think if you look back on, I start the piece with the the Ferguson report. Yeah. Which is, I think, the most uh, influential, one of the most important uh, federal government documents on race, maybe since the Kerner Commission report. Mm. Uh, It really... What they describe there, in no uncertain terms, is the fact that a town is in, built entirely on stealing from black people. Yeah. Right? <laughs> That's what the conclusion of that report is. And it becomes sort of the foundation. Wait, wait this was the D.C. report? That was the DOJ. Yeah, that's the America report, right? <laughs> right, right, right. <laughs> right, right. But, you know, I, I think the Ferguson report does that. It basically goes, it, it, it gives uh, sort of, people who've been gaslighted forever for saying this about America, right? It gives them, so actually you guys may have been right. Yeah. So all these activists, it gives them sort of hope that maybe we're entering a new phase where the federal government's going to be looking out for them and actually going to 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 institute some type of restitution for, for what's happened. Uh, people really get on board with the idea. People are actually talking about reparations. Uh, and that's happening as Donald Trump is campaigning, right? So he's elected. We get the attorney general we've been promised. Here's the ominous phrase from from your piece. After you talk, after we talk about that report, mm-hmm. then 
Jefferson Beauregard Sessions III took over. Yes. Then he took over. And not Trump. So I make sure to say there, it's not that Trump took over. It's, you know, I actually think in, in, the, in the grand scheme of policy, uh, Trump's only important because of who he enables. Yeah. And, and in this sense, uh, the architect of pretty much all the news we've been watching over the past month, and that's even including the Russia investigation, which is under still his, his aegis, yeah. is, is Jeff Sessions. Yeah. Uh, he's, uh, the zero tolerance policy comes from him. Uh, pretty much all of the uh, criminal justice policy we've been talking about. He's basically been stumping on his vision of criminal justice unreform. Um, and that's uh, those have been the biggest uh, policy victories for President Trump. Uh, the, the title, The End of Civil Rights, comes not because I think that we're in danger of uh, – losing all civil rights, although for some people that may be possible. It could very well be possible, yeah. But what I describe is for the last 50 years, we've been, we've been living in, in an era uh, that might be well defined by federal intervention in favor of minority civil rights. Uh, it, it starts with intervention at uh, Ole Miss by the DOJ, the armed intervention there. Yeah. And it's the first armed intervention in favor of minority civil rights since Reconstruction. And that kicks off a wave. This was to get James Meredith. Yeah, it's okay. Meredith. Okay. And, and, this was to and, integrate yeah. the campus. Right, yeah. integrate the campus. And so you have these uh, this this new paradigm of the Civil Rights Division of the DOJ and the federal government being obligated to fight aggressively on behalf of minority civil rights. And now that may be coming to a close. I mean, you know, we have... A, a, a storied tradition here in America of being pretty terrible to minorities. I think that's been fairly well established. Yeah, it's a, it's it's built in. Yeah, that's just it's just who we are. Uh, as unfortunate as I as it is, but there were glimmers of some hope, especially under Barack Obama, where you saw somebody at the highest level actually care and. Like, just compare it to today, right? Antoine Rose, who was shot in East Pittsburgh. How many people have heard about that story? Yeah, it's... Another unarmed black child shot by police. Like you said earlier, the bandwidth. How can you hold that story in your head when you have so many other really just off-the-wall terrible things happening? It it just seems like there's a, a limited... There is a limited capability. Well, th- this kind of stuff keeps coming up at the White right. House. Uh, yeah. and, in, and when we used to have briefings, this would come up there. Um, and, you know, the response from the administration was always black unemployment is down. That's right. The, that's the sort of panacea for <laughs> the whole thing. Donald black Trump was, was talking about that again over the weekend. Yeah. He, he again was crowing and, about how great uh, black unemployment. By, by the way, I haven't had a chance yet, but I keep meaning to double check Latino unemployment um, to just to see where the discussion could go if we start to ask about, you know, their treatment of Latinos writ large. But, you know, what, what's your take on the on that as a response? So black unemployment is, uh, did hit his, a historic low yeah. at one point, very recently. But if you still parse it out, it's still, you if you took that unemployment rate and applied it to the country, it's, as, at its, it's where it would be at its low during the Great Recession, still. <laughs> um, it, what we accept for people of color in this country is still basically recession, depression levels for white yeah. people, right? Uh, but also, the structure of employment has changed. 
So we have to consider that. We have m- many more people now who are permanently disabled. What, what you're saying, this reminds me of the um, old Chris Rock bit where he talks about people bragging that they take care of their kids. I take care of my kids. Right. Yeah. You're supposed to. You're supposed like, to. Hey, hey, we, we've we've brought down black unemployment. You're supposed to. Yeah, right. Like, that right. is the, the goal, the, so, the sole job of federal <laughs> economic policy is to ensure that we don't have inflation and right. that we have relatively full employment. Let me ask you guys a question. I, I want to get both of your takes on this because you cover the White House and, and, and you've written this great piece. Uh, when we talk about bandwidth, what we're able to process, right? When we're not able to give much media attention at all to a, another uh, uh, death of a, of a black a child at the hands of uh, police officers, is that by design from the White House? Is it like a matter of we're going to bombard you with so much news that you can't worry about this stuff that we actually, I mean, for all the talk about Barack Obama from uh, Republicans, what a horrible president he was! Like things went so smooth that we were actually able to focus on really like harmful, damaging things to this country. Donald Trump, I think, is has us talking about Sarah Huckabee Sanders eating at a restaurant and getting kicked out of a restaurant, as opposed to the death of American citizens at the hands of an armed uh, 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 police force. Is that by design, or is that just because they're so incompetent at, at managing things? I don't think it's by design, I necessarily. I, I, my sense of how this unfolding drama works, and you, I guess you probably have better insight on this than me, but it's just that once you start manufacturing drama for the sake of uh, maybe elevating yourself or defending yourself or being defensive, it becomes a cycle you can't, you, you can't stop. You, you have to always... Uh, if you innately create spectacle of yourself and what you're doing i don't think there's you don't need, ever need right. to really plan it out like <laughs> and people just are not used to uh this sort of constant circus playing out um but yeah there's lots of people who are good examples that don't come from, from the white house who who always have the cameras on them you know you have local sheriffs <laughs> joe arpaio is a good example yeah. i don't ever think joe arpaio is like planning that he's going to be on on youtube uh, and he's going to create this media stir, but this is what he does. This is like, people talk about the Occam's Razor with like Trump and like. I, I, and I agree with that ten thousand percent. Yeah, by the way. yeah. I, I am very anti sort of Eric Garland. Trump is playing five D chess. No, like, no, he's he's not yeah. playing chess but, at all. But I will say, you know, because that sort of goes counter. <laughs> he's playing to a the, completely different board game. It's not chess. But that he's playing Scattergory. Yeah, right. You know, what's the game? Pop goes perfection. Oh, you know, yeah. he's just he's just popping the board every three <laughs> minutes and blasting all the pieces everywhere. Yeah. But um. You know, this kind of goes counter to what we were saying earlier, where I was saying, you know, I feel like the um, redhead thing is a bit of a deliberate distraction from the White House because that's a discussion they want to have. And sometimes that blatantly does right. happen, that's as fair. in that case. They, they blatantly would rather discuss one thing than another. When Trump has the event with the quote unquote angel families to move the discussion to quote unquote illegal alien crime rather than the detention centers, that is a blatant distraction. But other than that, there is also just this volume of news. And I'll give a couple examples, right? 
when this child detention zero tolerance policy was sort of first coming to light, because again, as we were saying, you know, the groundwork was laid in late 2017, maybe even early 2017. It was announced in April, enacted in May. So we started to see the effects earlier this month. Um, and I had this one situation where, you know, when back when there used to be briefings, um, my editors and I would sort of brainstorm, okay, what's the question today? What's the question today? Um, and I wanted to ask about these kids. Um, and we decided not to, and it really hadn't come up yet. Um, and the reason we decided not to, and I don't even fault myself for this, is because the second choice question we were debating was um, the death toll in Puerto Rico, yeah. which had been estimated, you know, it's in the thousands. I think that that 5,000 report, uh, the methodology is a little flawed, but, you know, definitely over 1,000 people died on this administration's watch in Puerto Rico. And they said, no, they haven't addressed that. You ask about that. And I literally, I, I said to my wife, I was like, well, that's the only question, you know, that I could see, you know, rightfully coming ahead of the kids. And I asked about it. Um, and now we're not asking about Puerto Rico this week, At all. even though a thousand people died, because the kids is a valid story, too. Right. And, you know, normally in a different administration, maybe I would ask about Antoine. You know, we would ask about, like, the latest high-profile case of, um, you know, this was ruled a homicide, what right. happened in Pittsburgh, yeah. um, this police officer shooting this kid. Um, that's a question that could come up in a White House briefing, but not necessarily in a world where you have 2,000 kids. We don't know how many detained. Right. So the volume of news is just bonkers. 2,000 kids planning for 20,000. Right. Right. Planning right, for right. 20,000 by the end of the summer. Well, you actually get into, uh, in, in your piece, The Death of Civil Rights, you get into the Sessions Doctrine. Right. Uh, and you talk specifically about this immigration stuff and, and how this all folds into it. Yeah. Um, so what I wanted to be clear on is that the uh, immigration pose immigration posture now that's being taken by the Trump administration is not some old hat, it's not some new hat thing, right? It's, it's very old. Yeah. It's it's older than Trump himself. It's It goes back to the 1920s. You know, we're talking about very restrictive uh, ideas of who gets to be an American and, and what it means to cross the border. Yeah. You're talking about a misdemeanor. Yeah. <laughs> Crossing the border is a misdemeanor, right? right. And, and most times we handle immigration as a civil case. Now we're talking. Not, not, not yeah. to mention, by the way, that like the the people that are coming here seeking asylum, like that's perfectly legal. That's perfectly legal. Perfectly legal. And seeking asylum, and, and now you hear them saying, "We want to stop yeah. all asylum grants. We want to stop. We want to stop people coming and asking for asylum." Period. And, and what normally right. used to happen in an asylum situation is someone would arrive if they had a remotely credible claim. They were sort of given a desk appearance, essentially, to come back and resolve that in court. They couldn't necessarily just stay, yeah. but they weren't put in a detention facility or asked immediately Fair. to leave. Right. The, and, and we're talking about prison. <laughs> People are in prison. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And also, uh, what w one of the signature, I think, pieces of the Obama uh, asylum granting uh, policy was lots of people who weren't granted asylum were sort of given non-deportation orders. So the, uh, the most... Uh, recent story of the Salvadoran woman uh, who was forced into slavery yeah. uh, by gangs and her labor under Obama, she was denied asylum because her labor was constituted as material support for a terroristic uh, gang. There, I, I saw Elizabeth Warren, she was down at the border and she was saying that there was one woman who uh, offered water to police. Mm -hmm. The border's hot. Right. He wanted the police. And gang members saw that and targeted her specifically for cooperating with police. 
I mean, it happens. Now, it's important, as we bring up gang members, Fox News' own research arm has found that a mere fraction of the kids that are yeah. labeled as, as having ties, you know, th there is a real gang problem in Central America. People are fleeing it. But I believe it was either 0 0.02 or 0.2% of the kids who've come across the border are found to have MS-13 ties. And, and actually, having read a lot about MS-13 government reports and what have you, what they tend to do here in the States is actually recruit in high schools right. once kids are already here. So so th the problem is not dealing with these infants, in some cases, at the border. It's dealing with the situation in our cities and towns and high schools. No, so really. What, yeah. <laughs> yeah. The logic for a while, until they realize it doesn't really hold, was basically getting people to believe that eight-month-olds who are breastfeeding have ties to MS-13. Right. That was really like yeah. that was the line for so long. Is that lots of these kids are, are being smuggled? They are, you know, some of them are considered to be anchors. They are all basically part of this grand MS13 plot to take over America. And we're talking infants being uh, and, and taken in, from their mothers. Keep in mind too. I, I don't want to get too sidetracked in this, but MS13 is not the Mexican drug cartels. MS13 right. is not right. Pablo Escobar. It's it's a much more loosely organized thing with sort of individual groups in different towns and cities. There's not a ton of like transnational quarter they are a transnational organization in that you know they have a big presence in central america As but there's not like major. one right. guy right, right. there's not right. like one guy leading ms13 who's like okay everyone on long island do this tomorrow like, right it's, it's not like that i want to play that clip of kamala harris uh senator from california also mentioned in in when people talk about democratic candidates for for 2020 uh she was also at the border and she talked about sort of our values as a country we are so much better than this, and what we have got to do is fight against this. We are so much better than this. Are we really, though? I, I, I heard that, and it just I just sort of shrugged my shoulder just say, that's just someone who doesn't get it. We are not better than this. This is us. This is who we are. Yeah, this is what and, we do. And, and to the MS-13 point, look at how easy it is to get us as a country to get on board with the idea of ripping little babies off of their mother's breast to put them in a detention center, and we can just throw up our hands and just say, but they're but gang ties. Well, I, but gang I, ties. No proof. I do no. I, I, I do think it's it's, you know, in one sense correct to look at the Trump administration as kind of the logical endpoint of yeah. years of, you know, policies and, and institutional racism and what have you. We, we can look at it that way. Um, but I also think one thing that you get to in your piece that's really important is this idea of who's being enabled. And the fact that there are some people in this administration right now who in any discussion of any one of these issues are sort of extreme. And what I mean is, you know, you're talking about Jeff Sessions a lot. Stephen Miller, who is maybe the architect of this whole detention policy, got his start as a Sessions, you know, a Sessions right. protege. Stephen Miller is in the White House now, and his right-hand woman is Julia Hahn. I've profiled her. She worked for Breitbart. She has some 
pretty hardline views on immigration. These are the people whose voices are being elevated now. And there was a piece in NBC News, I believe, this morning talking about how, you know, Trump is sort of freezing out General Mattis, the defense secretary, and increasingly listening to this new um, inner circle he's developing. And we're seeing voices like Miller emerge with more power. We're seeing voices like John Bolton on the foreign policy front. And I recently, you know, did a story about John Bolton's top aide and how he thinks, you know, negotiations with North Korea are pointless and we kind of imminently need to use force there. So, So on the foreign policy front, we're seeing new people be enabled with sort of the most hardline views. And then when we discuss, um, you know, police issues, uh, issues of police reform, um, Rudy Giuliani is now emerging in the president's inner circle. And, you know, I'm from Brooklyn. And, you know, my reaction when Black Lives Matter was sort of happening was, you know, we at least have to acknowledge a little bit that whatever problems remain with policing, it's not as bad as it was in New York under Rudy Giuliani. Because in New York, under Rudy Giuliani, you saw some of these truly horrifying, blatant cases. Things like Abner Luima, where yeah. this was this was not a man being shot. This was not a debatable, did they see the gun or whatever. They, they took this man back to the station house. They brutally assaulted and sodomized him yeah. and actually got criminally punished for it. This was the rare case where it was like that. And, you know, you had... Amadou Diallo, a man, 41 shots 41 in a shots. small doorway shots. where I believe, if I remember this correctly from my youth, they had to reload some of the guns while they were shooting him. And in all of these cases, Rudy was out front, you know, defending the officers. This was no, let's see what the investigation right. brings out. So, so you know, on police reform, not that this is necessarily an area where we know he holds sway now, but Rudy was a voice well out of what we now recognize as the mainstream on this, and he's now elevated and rising to a, a, a position of increasing prominence in this administration. Uh, Van, I want to ask you about another piece you wrote, the deep consistency of the Trump administration, because we played a clip last week of Jeff Sessions. We went on Christian Broadcast Network, Christian Broadcast News. My favorite news. Oh, yeah. yeah. I mean, where can, else? Can, I, can I just briefly interrupt? I'm looking at the TV, CNN, Chiron, right now. Virginia restaurant owner asked Press Secretary Sanders to leave. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to be on this all day, yeah. I think. Yeah. This is going to be the news. Top news. Yeah. Sorry, news. continue whatever you were discussing about millions <laughs> Let's of people. Let's talk about the actual news. Yeah. Uh, Jeff Sessions says the American people don't like the idea that we, were se- that we are separating families. We never really – I have to see if I can get this sentence out without choking on it. We never really intended to do that. What we intended to do was make sure that adults who bring children to this country are charged with the crime they have committed. End quote. That is... That's a lie. There is no other way to put this. That is a lie. That's a lie. That's a lie. And so it's been sort of a murky... They've done such a good job of blurring the lines with this story... And again, this gets back to whether or not this was intentional or not, right? But you say that, like, they're pretty much on message. Yeah, well, I think part of being on message is, is not having one consistent <laughs> message. That's <laughs> it. Because yeah, they've gone fair. through every single possible defense of zero-tolerance policy. First, they said it doesn't exist. Yeah, <laughs> that yeah. was that was the first line. Then the second well, line the was face. sort of the, the deterrence. And that, that's one that they linked. I mean, Obama, he, he had a theory of deterrence on the border. That's one they linked to previous policies. That's the actual uh, policy reason that you that you implement a zero tolerance thing is, is OK, you want to sever mothers from their their children yeah. to make it such a horrible thing to cross the border that nobody attempts it. 
they realized it doesn't really work. So then they started saying sessions had said that the children did well and that the, the, the shelters were better than uh, where they grew up. They were like boarding schools. And then we move on to boarding yeah. schools. So there was like summer camps. There were summer camps. Yeah. Uh, then we move on to more of the okay. Now the, oh, the the Democrats made us do it. Now they start realizing that people are responding badly to this, and it's oh we didn't mean it. The Democrats made us do it. That becomes part of the executive order now. Is that the, it's part? It's a title of the executive order. It's basically Congress made us do this, and now we have to take an executive action to fix yeah, this. They, they refer yeah. to it as giving Congress giving con- an opportunity yeah. to address child separation. Right. And and keep in mind, I think a big thing that's going on here, you know. There's been a lot of untruth in this administration. This past week or so is where it just got blatant to a level that it hadn't been before. The executive order being an incredible example, President Trump spent days saying he couldn't do this, and then he did it. I had David Martosco, a a fellow member of the White House press corps who has auditioned to be press secretary, this is a fact, um, come to me, you know, on Twitter, and, you know, when I I said something like, you know— you know, the, the the president was expressed and the attorney general were expressing themselves as if they had no power to fix this. I tweeted a Sessions op-ed where he said, like, someone needs to help us fix this. And I was like, if only they knew people. And David Martosco starts coming at me like, what, like a judge who can actually overturn Flores? He was defending this, going down on this ship two hours before the executive order. <laughs> the White House had sent out that op-ed where Sessions was saying they couldn't do anything like four hours before the executive order. And that's after a week in which they said, this isn't the policy, this wasn't the intention, the blah. I mean, the, it, it's been, I'm like losing it here because this it, it's so hard to talk about all the shifting explanations that proved untrue, but they did so in a very blatant fashion. The Flores thing just floored me because <laughs> it's, the, it's a consent decree. Yeah. The consent decree exists between the, the between the DOJ yeah. and the court. The DOJ can submit a request, which they did under the executive order, to modify the consent decree. That's the first step in changing it. And they're saying, okay, I can't change that. Well, actually, there <laughs> well, is well, there well. is a process under which you can. This, this really reminded me of something that I've seen in conservative media for a long time, where you have you know Rush Limbaugh, one of the conservative media dominates talk radio. Right. Yeah. It also. Sorry, Tell me about sorry it. Peter. <laughs> Tell um, me about it, it. <laughs> it also for a long time. I think I think under Trump, the picture has changed a bit, but it dominated cable news. I mean, Fox had like double the ratings of MSNBC for ages. This was the status quo. And yet, while this was the case, you had hosts going on the radio and going on TV, acting like they were some kind of pirate radio broadcast, yeah. you know, sitting there going like, you know, Oh man, the mainstream media. It's like that's you. Yeah. That you're that's most you. of the media. And so now you've got Tucker Carlson attacking the elites. It the same thing continues, but you have the president and the attorney general similarly acting like they are aggrieved and have no ability or control. That's the show today. We're out of time. Plain and simple. Hunter Walker from Yahoo News, Van Newkirk the second from The Atlantic. Go check out both of their great work. We'll see you here this tomorrow. This is the Bill Press Show.